Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of five issues for just £10. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Welcome to The Critic podcast. My name is Jo Bartosz. I'm a journalist and regular contributor to The Critic. I am delighted to be joined today by Helen Joyce. Helen is the Britain editor at The Economist, and she joins us today to talk about her book, Trans, When Ideology Meets Reality. Welcome, Helen. Thanks so much, Jo. So when I saw you written this, um, I must admit, I was a little bit envious because I wish I'd got in there first, but um, (laughs) but I know you're writing and I knew it would be a damn good and and it is indeed exceptionally well researched and a really compelling read. Would you mind telling listeners a little bit about the book? Well, it's a book that's really trying to answer the question that I think a lot of people will have over the last few years, especially, which is what the hell is going on? You keep seeing things that you never saw, you know, even five years ago and certainly not 15 years ago about how it's now, um, you know, so obviously the case that that there aren't just two sexes or that people's sex depends on what they say their sex is. And, you know, you sit there and you think, hang on, I'm a bit confused now. It's not that I thought I was a bigot for thinking that there were two sexes. It's that I knew there were two sexes. And that really is what it's for. And that's why it's called Trans. It's meant to be a book that will get people to pick it up if they think to themselves in a bookshop or if they look online or if someone mentions it and they say to themselves, what on earth is going on here? Why am I seeing that rapists are in women's jails? Why am I seeing that there are male people self-identifying into the women's Olympic competitions? Why on earth are children coming home from schools and calling themselves non-binary, neither male nor female? What on earth is going on? And um, I mean, given how how slight and unsubstantiated a lot of trans ideology really is, this, this book is actually quite hefty. Why do you think it takes so much sense to, to reassert sort of common sense like there are two sexes? Well, when I started talking about this first, I mean, just for your um, listeners, I'm over 50 myself. And when I went to university, I studied mathematics, have a PhD in mathematics. So I was literally never taught any of this stuff. I was completely blissfully unaware three or four years ago that there was anybody who thought that sex was a spectrum or that uh, gender was entirely performative or that doctors uh, worked out what sex children were by some sort of weird guesswork and then assigned <laughs> it to them. I had no idea anybody in the world thought these things. I hadn't been subjected to Judith Butler in university. You know, I hadn't been taught any queer theory. I didn't even know what queer theory was. And when I came across these things first, you know, I couldn't decide whether I was really missing something that they were talking in some metaphorical sense, didn't seem that they were, or that it was so, you know, so crazy that you would actually have to really address it. And so I would start to say things like I would mention things like that men are on average much stronger than women. That's that's because of testosterone. And people would say, oh, that's not very feminist of you, is it? Or they would say, oh, well, that's the way we used to think about it. But nowadays people think about these things quite differently. And I was completely puzzled. So I never knew what to say to people when they made these sorts of remarks because they're so crazy that you don't know what to say. Like the first time somebody says to you, what's the problem with putting males in women's prisons or why shouldn't people be able to identify into women's sports? You just don't know what to say. You're completely gobsmacked. So you have to go back and actually like research why people think these things, where these ideas came from. And then I had to learn an absolutely enormous amount of basic science and biology and evolutionary theory psychology and child developmental psychology and so on just to answer things that honestly didn't need answering I don't think anything different than I did before I started this I'm just able to defend my ideas to people who have been taught rubbish and 
when you were doing that research, was there anything that sort of really jumped out and surprised you? I don't think it surprised me as such, but I was delighted to see it really uh, nailed down on the page. And that was the connection between being highly gender non-conforming in early childhood and growing up to, to realise that you're gay. Mm -hmm. So that's not something that people are taught in gender studies, which is so weird because it's one of the most striking facts, really. And, and funnily enough, everyone who's homophobic and everyone who's really traditionalist knows it very well. Like if you see a little two or three or four year old boy who swishes around the place and likes dressing up as Elsa or something like that, there's a good chance that boy's gay. He may well not be, but there's a good chance he is. And every homophobe in the world knows that. That's why they try to toughen up their little boys and, you know, stop yeah. them from dressing like girls and try to make them interested in sports when they're not and, you know, take them hunting, fishing, and shooting or whatever. And so the people who aren't homophobic and the people who think the gender is performative seem to completely miss this link. But the fact is that most women are quite feminine, if you mean, you know, not massively dressed up and lipstick by feminine, but just kind of the sorts of interests that women more have than men. And most men are kind of masculine. They have more male coded interests. Some people aren't like that. Everybody's a bit exceptional, but the people who are really exceptional, especially from very early childhood, are much more likely to be gay than other people. So that struck me as very interesting. Yeah, yeah. And um, I mean, given that, are you, are you perhaps surprised that organisations like Stonewall um, and in America, GLAD, um, haven't recognised the inherent homophobia with, within trans ideology? Nothing surprises me about these organisations anymore, I have to say. I mean, disgusted might be a better word. Yeah. We've known these things for 50 years and more, and you know, loads of gay adults will tell you that. Loads of gay men will tell you that they thought that they were meant to be little girls. Um, loads of them will tell you that the things that were shouted at them in the playground were, you know, you're such a girl. And very much the same for a lot of lesbian women that, you know, they, they, they didn't know why they hated female coded things so much, like why they wanted their hair short, why they wanted to be playing in the mud and so on. And then when it came to their adolescence, their bodies told them the answer as to why they were different from their peers. But if you buy the idea that what makes you a man or a woman or a male or a female is a declaration or a feeling rather than just your immutable biology set at conception, then you can really believe anything. Yes. And once you go down that sort of um, totally constructionist um, zero equals one type of mentality, you find yourself in a place where, you know, black is white. And when people say to you, no, black is black and white is white and the two aren't the same thing, you get angry and you have to double down and triple down. And then before you know it, you're not just, uh, you just, you don't just have no connection with your initial mission. You're actually acting completely contra to your initial mission. So now we have organizations like Stonewall and in the States, GLAAD, GLAD, which was originally the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, are actually homophobic. They're actually supporting the transition, meaning the sterilization and, uh, you know, a, 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 you know, lifelong medicalization, let's put it that way, of children who are gender non-conforming and those children are more likely to be gay. So, you know, they're the most effective conversion therapy peddlers that we've ever seen. Yeah. And uh, am I right in thinking that it was the experience of detransitioners that, that prompted you to write trans? It was their experience that got me over the hump from saying, I really should write this book, but you know, can I can I really dedicate a year of my life to working out why humans aren't the same as clownfish or <laughs> how they really are just two sexes or telling people idiocies like, yes, it is a bad idea to put men in women's sports. Um, you know, I was I was kind of reluctant to do it. <laughs> you know, my work is just something completely different. I was the finance editor of The Economist at the time. I was working in a in a field that's really evidence-based and fact-based in an organization that's very evidence and fact fact-based. 
And at the same time, I was aware this complete insanity was taking over. And it wouldn't matter to me so much if it was just some you know, youth subculture or something, but it was actually taking over in policy. Like it's really governments that put rapists in women's prisons. That's not a subculture thing. That's not a youth culture thing. It's not even a culture war thing. It's actual policy. Yeah. And so I was, I was getting more and more concerned about it and more and more sure that I really was going to have to do something, even if it caused a lot of problems for me personally, or even if it put my job at risk or whatever. And then I went to this meeting of detransitioners. It was the inaugural meeting, the Detrans Advocacy Network, which was a group of um, detransitioned people. So to explain to your listeners, when somebody feels that they're transgender, meaning that they identify as not being the sex that they actually are, uh, they may go through some medical procedures. And even here in the UK, even though we're a bit, we were a bit slower to start down this road than the US and Canada were, even here we are willing to give children under 16 uh, drugs that we don't really know what they do to postpone their puberty, and then at 16 to give them cross-sex hormones, and then at 18 maybe mastectomy, um, hysterectomy, uh, remove their ovaries if they're girls. Um, if they're boys, they may get uh, castrated to get their penis removed and the skin of it inverted to make a neovaginal cavity. And all of this was starting in childhood when people's children said to them that uh, they really are members of the opposite sex and their parents, instead of saying, darling, it doesn't work that way, uh, would say, oh, I see, and start them down this path to medicalization and indeed sterilization. So some of those kids grow up to wish that none of this had ever happened. And I met some of them and it was one of the most upsetting experiences of my life, um, listening to women who were barely out of their teens and in some cases had no reproductive organs, you know, voices broken from taking testosterone, um, receding hair, all of them with facial hair. You know, these things may sound superficial, but they make it very hard to fit in in the world. And if you afterwards decide that what you were sold was an absolute pup and you've done all these things to yourself on the basis of it, of course, you're angry and you're angry with yourself and you're traumatized. And you don't know why the adults around you didn't tell you some good sense, like why they were lying to you and saying you could actually change sex. And that night I decided I had to write the book that it didn't really matter if it, you know, lost me this, that or the other. It didn't matter. Any of those things didn't matter because they were sterilizing gay kids. Yeah. Yeah. And the stakes are just incredibly high, aren't they? And I mean, you alluded there a little bit to um, to to um, some of the kickback. Um, so a lot of uh, those of us who are sort of involved in this debate are, are used to coming under fire from transgender activists. But um, for me, one of the most painful things has been losing friends. Um, do you mind if I ask, has, has that happened to you? I'm a bit older than you, Joe. So I guess that most of the people my own age um, are quite sympathetic. And in fact, I've got back in touch with some people who I had lost touch with, you know, got, got in touch with me out of the blue to say, you know, so glad you're doing this. I wish I could, I, you know, I can't in work. And I've felt awkward a lot of times, um, you know, through work for totally unrelated reasons. I have to get in touch with people and ask them if they'll be interviewed or whatever. And I always worry what the response is going to be. But hearteningly often it's, you know, keep going, follow you on Twitter, don't dare say anything. Um, you know, this stuff really matters. Mm. Um, or, you know, people tell me that they, um, their own children have uh, really have gender difficulties and that it's causing great stress within the family. And the parents think that this is social contagion, but you know, the children learn online how to um, say the right scripts to get what they need from doctors and or what they think they need from doctors and also to interpret anything their parents say as transphobia. So I would say I have lost some people, but I've certainly gained more. Yeah. And you know what? I really don't care. I mean, I'm not doing this as a popularity contest. And if yeah. somebody doesn't want to talk to me because of this, that's their issue, not mine. And I was, I was wondering, I mean, it's it's made me think about um, so, some other viewpoints that I, I held and was sort of, you know, quite 
quite sort of committed to and it's really made me question things has it done the same for you has sort of you know untangling this and perhaps probing something that um a little bit more deeply has has, has it made you question other viewpoints that you held yeah it's made me question everything really i mean i wouldn't say so much exactly viewpoints i mean I, if I were to say sort of the headline things about who I am and what I am, you know, I'm an old fashioned 19th century liberal um, who is also an atheist, um, you know, those sorts of things, those things haven't changed. It's made me think very differently about a lot of people and organizations than I did before is the big thing. Yeah. So I think so very much worse of the charity sector than I used to. I just look at some of these charities that really should be standing up for women and for gay people. And I feel the most profound contempt. You know, I mean, as we're talking, it's very recently that the, um, the judicial review has uh, come back on the Ministry of Justice's policy for about putting, you know, male rapists in women's jails, like literally male rapists, ordinary male bodies, completely intact in women's jails and the, uh, result of the judicial review was that, you know, yes, it's very understandable that women find this horrible and hard. Yes, it's understandable that this makes women afraid and, you know, so on and so forth, but it's totally lawful. Well, yeah. the Ministry of Justice and the government, I mean, what are they doing? This isn't a decision for the courts. The courts are just saying that it's lawful. That means the law is an ass and should be changed. And so why aren't politicians doing it? But more than that, where are the established women's organisations? Yes. Yeah. You know, what about the Women's Institute? What about Force of Society? I could not think worse of these organisations. There's literally nothing they could do at this point that would make me think worse of them. They have one job and they're not doing it. And I would say the other thing that I really, really have feel so negative about compared to the way I used to feel is the whole scientific community and also journalism, because they're meant to be part of the, what you might call the reality-based community, the meaning-making um, meaning testing institutions. Scientists aren't meant to say things for such ideological reasons. And yet I see famous journals publishing, publishing absolute toss pottery on the subject of trans <laughs> issues. There's just no, just no depth they won't plumb. And the same with journalism. I mean, the New York Times has given space for people to say that sex is not binary. It's given space for male people to say that they're female. Same with the Washington Post, same with CNN, same with the Guardian, same with the BBC. All of these people should know better. They're really betraying, profoundly betraying their customers, their viewers, their readers and the whole scientific community. What, what are doctors doing not standing up against this? Yeah, and I mean, you, you do touch on it um, in your book, but I wondered if you wanted to explain perhaps about how you think this, this ideological capture has happened. Oh, it's sort of a long story, and that's one of the reasons the book is so long. So you to explain to your listeners, it's an odd idea that somebody might have that they're not actually of their sex, but it's an idea that people do have, and they have it for a variety of reasons, depending on whether they're male or female, and on other things too, for example, whether they're gay or straight. And very briefly, um, you know, some gay people are so gender non-conforming that the society they live in being so unaccommodating of people like them does in the end produce this thing called gender dysphoria, which is discomfort of your sex. And, and in the end, they feel that the only way that they can live happily or even contentedly is by uh, trying to get the world to accept them as members of the opposite sex. But there are other reasons. And in particular, there are men who aren't particularly feminine in any sort of obvious way, whose sexuality is constructed around the notion that they are women. And those people are, as men often are in their sexuality, they're um, 
they're very, very uh, single-minded. And really you can trace through several decades um, this sort of kernel of sexual desire to force the world to accommodate some men as women. As a, and I see that as kind of the motive force behind something that started small and then grew. And then it picked up ideas that were created on campus in America. Uh, it's really specifically in America. This is an American idea that, uh, that sex is something that you can declare rather than something that you're born with. It's like a new religion that was created on campus in America. But that group, that sort of, I don't know, adhered around this nucleus of male desire. And it spread out through, in particular, left-wing or liberal America, and it's taken over the Democrats, it's taken over these organisations like the ACLU and the HRC and GLAOD that were founded for really quite different purposes. And they've now all become institutions that spread this new religion. And it, you know, it's very much only on that side, blue America. It's, it's in New York, California, institutions like the, um, the, the liberal mainstream media, um, universities. It's really not a Republican idea at all. And then it's spread out from America because America has such global dominance worldwide that things that happen in American culture tend to go global. We've seen that before with things yeah. like uh, multiple personality syndrome or with um, the American style eating disorders. They're spread by these things. And then the last part of the, um, the ingredients for this transgender ideology is, of course, social media. Now, these are American firms that are based in Silicon Valley in California, the most liberal state where, you know, what sex you are is what you sex you say you are. And that doesn't matter if you're a physiologically ordinary man who wants to go into a women only changing room, and take off your clothes and wander around with your tackle out or what, because that's Californian orthodoxy now. Yeah. And that's the way that the social media um, companies moderate their platforms. You get kicked off Twitter if you say to a man that he's a man. He doesn't want you to say that he's a man. You get kicked off Facebook for the same. You get treated like you're, in a, you know, somebody who's trying to say that vaccines don't work. I see it as something like the left wing young earth creationism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and um, so I know you, you've said you're an atheist and, and obviously sort of come from a, a liberal tradition. Um, from that, do you think it's it's fair to, to to sort of suggest that we might be living in a, a new dark ages of, of superstition? I mean, it is obviously totally non fact-based to say that people, human beings can change sex when no mammals can change sex. And I do see it in that sense as being the left-wing equivalent of young earth creationism. It's an entirely invented idea that has zero basis in reality. And we've never seen something like this grow up in an era of global connectivity and also an era in which censorship is so easy. You know, 20 years ago, when people started to organise online, we thought that the internet would be the force against censorship. And so it proved in some ways. But now we're watching people who just say the most basic things like, don't you think we should find out what puberty blockers do before we use them on a large scale in children? You know, people like that are really hounded out of public life, you know, kicked off all the social media firms. And they lose jobs in universities. You can't write these things in most mainstream publications now. Um, doctors are taught completely the opposite. So we're actually seeing a huge apparatus of social control uh, in the purpose of this new religion. And we've never seen that before. Now, whether that makes for a dark age, I don't know, because I don't know that we've ever, um, since the Enlightenment, had such an insane idea as the idea that humans can change sex. I mean, it makes young earth creationism look quite, quite well-founded in comparison. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, something that... Um... 
that seems to be a, a global phenomenon in response to this is there's been a real resurgence in feminist thought. And I mean, you know, it's, it's made me recognize how uh, structures, institutions sort of bow over really to, 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 to male sexual will. Is something, do you think that's, um, do you think that's fair? Do you think um, the sort of march of trans ideology can in a way be seen as, as a march of a, a men's sexual rights movement? Well, I don't think that's how people who are inside it feel at all. And we must, we must of course acknowledge that uh, some of the most ardent supporters of these sorts of ideas are women. Yeah. And a lot of them call themselves feminists. Um, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, any person who accepts even one rapist in women's jails can't call themselves a feminist. It's an absolutely crazy thing that they could think of there, that they care about women's rights if they don't care about that basic fact. Um, I don't think it was set up as a men's rights movement, but I think there's no way it would have got so far if it wasn't so convenient for male sexuality. Yeah. And it fits rather nicely with male ways of seeing the world. I didn't realise until all of this happened just how superficial a lot of men's ideas of women were. You know, men do see women as the other in the famous yeah. title of Simone de Beauvoir's book, The Second Sex. You know, men are the subject and women are the object. And for a lot of men, we are just the scenery in their lives. And the reason they get so angry when we stand up and say, no, we don't like it this way. No, you can't just put these gender non-conforming men in skirts into women's spaces. You know, the skirts don't make them women. They're men. Now you deal with them in your space. They get angry the same way that they get angry if the scenery stood up and started to talk and say, no, I don't <laughs> yeah. want to be in this play, you know? They regard yeah. themselves naturally as the centre of the play with the spotlight on them. And women are fine as long as they're compliant and around the men and saying yes and supporting them, being attractive if they're heterosexual men, being silent if they're homosexual men, you know? Women as supporting actresses in men's lives are fine. But as soon as women say, you know what, I have my own drama, I'm, this, I'm the central actor in my own life, they get so furious. That's the thing that I've seen that I didn't realise before all of this. So I, I wouldn't say it's exactly a men's rights movement in the sense of what people think that means, like which is that you set out to take women's rights away. I think these men never, ever, ever thought of women as fully human. Yeah. And they're getting angry now when we say things that show that we regard ourselves as fully human. They really, really, really don't see why, for example, we shouldn't be fine with just being in the sports and losing to the, to the, to the males who want to be in female sports. Like they say stupid things to women like, well, winning isn't everything, it's about taking part. <laughs> I'm saying that to bloody Man United or, I don't yeah. know, I, I don't care about football at all, so I'll, I'll stop trying to think of the names of football teams. But yeah, nobody says that to male athletes. Nobody says, oh, well, it was the taking part that mattered. So women are just there to be decorative, to be background, to be supportive. And if you, if you don't see why women want their own spaces and so on, you don't even, we shouldn't even have to go to the violence, Joe. We shouldn't even have to say, look, women are at risk, or, you know, it's embarrassing to have to take your clothes off in front of men or whatever. We shouldn't have to say any of that. We should just be able to say one word, no. Yeah. And if men can't see that, then I regard them as men's rights activists, whether they think they're that or not. Yeah, no, absolutely. I quite agree. Um, and actually, you're sort of touching on sports there. And and since um since your your your, your book went to um, went to publication, um, so uh, Laurel Hubbard has um has obviously been accepted into the women's category in the Olympics, um, and many of the questions you raised about Stonewall, for example, have been sort of coming out into into the public domain. Do you feel vindicated or um? Or is it a sort of, you know, a bit of a, a bitter victory? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I don't feel that um, 
that my attitude to it changes what happens. So I try not to get caught up in um, how I feel about these things happening because they're very upsetting if you allow yourself to think about it. I mean, I know a lot of women um, after the announcement about how it was completely lawful to scare the wits out of women in jail by putting rapists in with them. I, I know a lot of women found that very hard. My, my mother cried actually, she told me when she read about it because she was just thinking what it must be like for those women. But I don't think we can afford to do that actually. I don't think we can afford to think about how these things make us feel. It's just, you know, firm of purpose is the point. Mm -hmm. So that was, what that was what changed in me that night after I went to that D-Trans Advocacy Network thing. Before that, I've been thinking, how will this make me feel? How will writing this book make me feel? What will it do to my life? And then after that, I was completely calm. As far as I was concerned, you know, I had seen something that for some reason a lot of other people hadn't seen, which was that they are sterilizing gay children in the name of a really, really crazy neo-religion. And I, I wasn't willing to walk by that. And so it didn't matter then how I felt about anything. It was just a question of doing it. And the way that, I mean, that's a year and a half and a, more, than a, more than a year and a half ago now, um, the way that I felt for the last year and a half is there is some number of gay kids who are going to be sterilized. Not just gay kids, but it's the gay kids I'm thinking about right now. I care a lot about gay kids. Um, there's some number of them who are going to be sterilized and maybe that number will be smaller if I write this book. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know how much smaller. And that's part of the reason that I, I try my hardest to get the word out there is I want that number to be as much smaller as possible. But it's not about my feelings. It's not about vindication. It's not about bitterness or you know, any of those things. There's something that's happening and I'm trying to mitigate or stop or, you know, rein it in. And that's all. And obviously in the UK, there's been a, a huge concerted pushback uh, led mainly by feminists um, against gender ideology but in the in the US it seems they're sort of really playing catch-up um, do you think do you think there is a growing divide between the UK and the US with regards to this and how do, how do you think it will play out? So I don't see it as a catch-up at all I feel that the US was way ahead of us in going in the wrong direction and they're still racing away from us. So I said, I thought this is an American invention and I'm absolutely certain of this, that this, this idea came out of American campuses. And um, you know, really you can point to particular people like Judith Butler um, yeah. who, who created these ideas. And you know, for whatever historically contingent reasons it took off, and you can point to some of them, you know, American polarization, which means that people talk to each other much less across the divide in America than they do even in the UK, which is a quite polarized country. Um, they're, strong tradition of religiosity which means that they are you know a place where people believe in ufos and angels <laughs> on the earth and you know more astrology and you know new ageism and so on you know it's a very it's a, it's a country where people really do easily believe um, quite strange things um and i would say also uh, very strong prudishness like it's very countercultural in america to just state boldly you know we're talking about cock and balls here we're not talking about <laughs> yeah. you know an essence an internal essence here and that makes it incredibly hard to talk about what you want to say like if you're the woman who's saying look this person may be a woman fine call them what you like but they've got a cock and balls and these cock and balls are uncovered and they've come into the changing room you sound obscene you, yes. you know the thing that's happening is obscene but you're sounding obscene and you know i'm irish i live in england you know we can say these things to some extent in america that's extremely difficult yeah. because they're so prudish so they're they're talking about people as if people are disembodied spirits residing in meat sacks or something yeah. so it's an american ideology and specifically a democrat or left-wing or liberal whatever word you want american ideology it's blue states it's universities it's liberal media 
it's really not taken on at all in the Republican Party. Um, and there it's raced away and it's, it's really become institutionalized. And Biden is about to pass an Equality Act that would change the meaning of the word sex in all federal legislation and therefore cascading down into the states to mean just what people say they are. So, you know, I could become a man simply by saying that I regard myself as male and then I have to be treated in every respect by the law as if I'm male. And a man can do the same and say that he's a woman. So, so that's so they've gone that far, and polarization stops any any attempt to try to bring them back because the people who might bring them back, they just dismiss them. They say, oh, they're Trumpists or they're Christian conservatives or they're homophobes or whatever, you know. Yes. Whereas here in the, in, in in the UK, was well, so before I say what's happening in the UK, we could go like culturally further from America if we go to say mainland Europe or like northern Europe. Those countries have. Uh, seen some gender ideology come into them and they are treating children in ways that you would not treat children if you understood what sex really was and if you understood anything about developmental psychology but it hasn't it hasn't got very deep roots and the pushback is working quite well so Sweden and um, Finland have now stopped treating children in the same in my opinion evil way that they've been treated in the last 10-20 years under this yeah. ideology whereas the UK is in this midway spot we're culturally close enough to America that we have received this ideology quite a heavy dose, especially in universities and in the media. Uh, but at the same time, we're far enough away and we have some specific differences, in particular, less polarised, less religious, less prudish. Um, and our feminism is a much more materialist feminism. It's yes. much more about, you know, maternity leave and reproductive rights and much less about, you know, uh, has the CEO got somewhere to express breast milk? Um, <laughs> yeah. you know, so they, I mean, if you look at America, it's the only developed country that didn't manage to get paid, paid maternity leave. You know, there's something very badly wrong with their feminism. It's, 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 it's a glass ceiling feminism rather than a materialist feminism. So here we got less, we, we got sort of enough of a dose of it that there has to be a massive house to house fight. But there are enough differences here that we can fight back against it. And that's why you're seeing this titanic battle on what Americans call Turf Island. Yeah. <laughs> Turf fearless is a trans exclusionary radical feminist. Apparently, only a radical feminist could possibly believe that declaring yourself to be one sex doesn't doesn't make you that sex. I mean, you know, everybody's a turf. Reality's a turf. Yes. Yeah. Mother Nature. What a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's that that's that's interesting that um that you sort of well. I guess to, to, to use a, a religious analogy, it's um it's fallen on fertile soil in the states, whereas um whereas elsewhere, I guess there isn't that sort of you know ideological nourishment, if you like. Um, so do you think the 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 difference between um the UK and the US? Do you think um in some ways trans ideology has sort of overlaid onto as well as a, a religious backdrop onto a, a political fault line, so far as uh, the culture wars uh, are concerned? I mean, I suppose they have in the sense that the Conservatives would naturally not line up with people who think that everything is culturally constructed, including our sexed bodies. And Labour is more open because Labour, so Labour is turning into a party of young graduates. Mm -hmm. um, I, I would say that you see, you see the culture war on this issue play out within Labour rather than between Labour and Conservatives. Yes. So Labour, as people who write about British politics often comment, is is a very uneasy coalition of older, mostly working class people who haven't been to university, who would be you know, relatively culturally conservative, a lot of them. Um, I mean, they may very, very much feel live and let live about things like whether somebody's gay or whatever, but you know, they, they still have an ideal of 
two-parent family, even if they aren't in that themselves. And, you know, there will be people who will be instinctively suspicious of really wild ideas and who mostly don't live in London. And then there's the other labour, which is the big cities, went to university, extremely what Americans would call liberal. Mm -hmm. um, and those two groups really don't sit well together. And also within labour is this sort of multi-ethnic coalition, which is also a multi-religious coalition. So most Muslim people um, and would vote Labour traditionally. And that puts really the, the two very furthest extremes on this issue in the same party in this country. Yeah. Whereas in America, you know, the, the people who will be the most extreme um, observers of the insanity of transgender ideology will be Christian conservatives and they're in the other party. Whereas here, I think the people who will be the most uh, viscerally opposed to it will be uh, conservative Muslims. You know, it's just really not going to be something that goes down yeah. in, in, in a religion <laughs> where you're not even meant to touch somebody of the opposite sex unless you're related to them. Yeah. So they're in the same party. And I think that that's um, it, it's overlaid, I suppose, on the Brexit war within Labour as well. So Labour is, again, a coalition of people who would have been in large part people who voted Brexit, you know, anti-immigration, anti-globalism, uh, convinced that the way the world is going is tilting away from the worker and towards, uh, you know, the sort of Davos class. And then the people who aspire to be in the Davos, Davos class, <laughs> whether that's a very um, realistic aspiration or not. And they're in the Labour Party together. So that's where I see the biggest effect on politics in this country is within the Labour Party. I think the Conservatives could quite easily, if they've got a bit of guts and if they would listen to Liz Truss, could just quite easily say, look, all of this is mad. This is just a concoction of American universities. It's an import. We're having none of it. Of course, we're not going to put rapists in women's jails. You know, they could do that without losing votes, really. Yes, yeah. And, and, and probably actually winning some votes. Whereas Labour, it's actually existential for them. Which of these two parties do they want to be? Do they, you know, because they will not hang on to the votes of the crazy... Um, total social constructionists no. one way and the other way they really won't hold on to um you know to old i say older blooming heck you know it's like, it sounds so condescending but you know more reality-based people i guess like you've got yeah. some bloke in his 50s or even his 40s and his daughter comes home from school and says oh you know there's a 16 year old boy now on our sports team and in our changing room and he's wandering around with his cock out you know like your average bloke isn't okay with this he really isn't okay <laughs> no. with this you have to have really had your brain rotted as a teenager and young person at university in order to think this is okay. Large numbers of people, it turns out, have had their brains rotted by this. Uh, they're in the Labour Party or the Lib Dems, if they're in politics at all, rather than the Conservatives. Um, and then you've got people who just really aren't okay with this at all in the same party. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's astounding, isn't it? And um, something, there was a bizarre story recently um, that kind of made me think about the, the end point, possibly, for transgender ideology or for this sort of you know idea of disembodiment which was um there's a youtuber who um has decided to identify as trans korean and has had surgery to um to look more stereotypically korean do you think that's where this will go do you think um do you think sort of having identities that are totally detached from from sort of material reality is the end point for this I think there's going to be a lot of endpoints, and I think it's going to stop being one cohesive thing that we can point at and say this is gender identity ideology or this is transgender ideology. I mean, there are people who've gone down this totally disembodied and um, dissociated route. I mean, there's a book that's called something like Full Surrogacy Now, 
which is about how the, you know, the, the family should end and nobody should be brought up by the person who gestated them. And it's trying to abolish the whole idea of the mother-child bond. And somehow this found a publisher and you know, found an audience and got reviewed places. Yeah. So there, you know, there is going to be this stream, especially in, in academia, of pretending that we're not mammals at all. And that's going to go along and maybe it'll start accepting um, transracial identifications as well. Although I should say that the transracial identifications gets a lot of pushback, especially in America, because it would allow you to identify out of doing your anti-racist work if you were white. Yes. Like a white person could just identify into being black and give up on the whole <laughs> Robin D'Angelo white fragility stuff. You know, they don't want that at all. So I don't know how that's going to play out. But I also think, like you, you know, you laughingly said, you know, nature's a bitch. Well, nature's a turf, and we are mammals, and you can't overwrite, you know, literally hundreds of millions of years of evolution just by reading some Judith Butler. Yes. So I think that there will be a backlash more, and that worries me. And it's a sort of it's a secondary motivation for writing the book. I don't want a backlash. I don't want something that comes back to hit gender non-conforming people, you know, trans-identified people, gay people. And the only way to lessen the backlash is to lessen the swing out in the first place. Yeah. Like the madder it all goes, the harder it swings back. I mean, if I were trans, I'd be extremely worried right now because I would feel that the people, the activists who say that they're acting in my name are forcing men into women's sports rapists into women's prisons they're sterilizing children those are three things that really 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 are not going to make you popular and it's not ordinary trans people who are doing that it really is the activists so the less far we go in that direction the less severe the swing back will be and so that's a secondary aim for me in writing the book yeah no i i, I quite agree i mean it, it's it really concerns me i, I write a lot for um a website called Lesbian and Gay News, and um, and yeah, I think there is evidence that the backlash is hitting those who are same-sex attracted or could potentially. Um, yep. Which um, yeah, we've sort of you know we've seen in Poland the uh, anti-LGBT zones and all the rest of it, and again, you know, there's no natural pairing between um, identifying as transgender and um, and and the sort of lesbian, gay, bisexual community. So it's, yeah, it is, it is really concerning. I, I mean, I feel that the two, in, in a sane world, the two groups would be very, very mutually supportive because they're both yes. gender non-conforming. I mean, you know, what drives the two groups is different. The, the difference really, the worrying difference isn't the people, it's the ideology. There isn't an ideology behind being gay. No. You know, it's just a question of who turns you on. Um, and there, of course, there isn't an ideology behind having gender dysphoria necessarily. Like you could just be an ordinary, just an ordinary person who feels very profoundly wrong in your body and ends up coming to the conclusion that, you know, some presentation modifications and bodily modifications are going to help. And you could be right as well. It's the ideology. It's this whole idea that what makes all of us male or female is what we say we are and that it's possible to be neither and that it's possible to be one some days and the other the other days and all sorts of completely insane things. The ideology is the difference and that ideology isn't just of no interest to gay people. It's inimical to being gay because what it says is that a gay person could be attracted to somebody of the opposite sex if that person of the opposite sex identified differently. Yes. Well, you know, that's that's not something you should be saying to sexual minorities because they've heard it enough before. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. So, Helen Joyce, thank you so much for your time. Um, as ever, it's been a, a pleasure to chat. Uh, Trans is published by One World and is available in bookstores from the, from the 15th of July. That's right. Thank you so much for having me on. I've really enjoyed talking thank you. to you. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? 
Subscribe today for the current offer of five issues for £10 by heading to our website www.thecritic.co.uk.